that psalm we read this morning, that could be a little scary, couldn't it? I, I actually titled uh, um, my message this morning, when we, get, when we get there, what are you afraid of? Well, there's some things in, in Psalm 91 to be afraid of. For instance, take a look at, at verses 5 and 6. You will not fear the terror of the night. That word, terror of the night, is referring to the kinds of dangers and dangerous people. Think of a home invasion in the wee hours of the morning. Or think of Antifa in the middle of the night marching down your street. Um, The kind of dangers, or maybe just you wake up in the middle of the night, maybe you heard a noise you don't know, but there's, there's this terror of the night that you just feel, you sense there's something that wants to harm you. Or the arrow that flies by day. Now, arrows were are, are, are the, uh, the um, for thugs or thieves, uh, bandits of that day, back in Old Testament times, they didn't use bow and arrow. Those were the tools of soldiers. Those were the, that was the equipment of armies. And so think of wars and rumors of wars around the world today and, and people caught up in the midst of that and very little they can do about it. Much to be afraid of. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, a pandemic, a virus floating all around and the various mutations of it, and you cannot see it coming. You, you don't know how to protect yourself from it. You thought if you got vaccinated, that would do it. And yet there's these breakthrough infections. And, and what do I do? What if it gets me? nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. That destruction, that word is is a word that's used for natural disasters. It's used for overwhelming storms and overwhelming floodwaters. Think Hurricane Ida. Think earthquakes. Think even the natural disasters like wildfires that sweep through an area and just wipe out homes and businesses and livelihoods. Nothing you can do about it. So, On that cheery note, when you think about all that's going on in life, what are you afraid of? And to just shrug and say, well, nothing really, probably suggests that you're a little detached from reality. Okay? There is much much harm out there. That's the reality of our mortality. There is much that can harm us and much that we cannot control. So what are you afraid of? And what do we do with that fear? What do I do when I am, and there are valid reasons to be fear? In, in, the, in the passages before us this morning, Mark chapter 16, and also chapter 15, we're going to catch the last episode of chapter 15 and tie that into the first episode in chapter 16. And as we do those two passages together, we're going to see an unlikely person who honors the Lord in an unexpected courage, an unlikely person, unexpected courage. We didn't expect this to come. They are set in contrast with faithful, devoted followers of Jesus who are at least initially paralyzed by fear. It's almost the opposite of the way it ought to be, right? The the faithful, devoted followers of Jesus ought to be setting the example here. The others see and learn from them and then join in as well. It's not the way the story is written, and it's meant to catch our attention. 
And before we get there, I probably should, should, should give a, a, a comment or two about the rest of, the, of chapter 16 of Mark's gospel. You probably have in your notes, in your Bible, somewhere there's brackets, there's a footnote or something that says many of the earliest manuscripts do not contain these verses, and that's very true. The best Greek manuscripts uh, seem to indicate that those verses, verse 9 through 20, are not original with Mark. Now, they're, they're written in a very different style. So it's almost like sometimes when you're reading in a magazine, there's multiple articles, and you turn the page, and you actually had some pages stuck together, and you're reading, and the new article doesn't, it's not following what you did just read. In fact, the style is different. It, it feels different than what you were reading before. That's something like if you were reading chapter 16 in, in Greek, and you're moving from one author's style to another. You, 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 you've all of a sudden come to a brand new word choice and selection. You've, you were reintroduced to Mary Magdalene as if we weren't really, wouldn't really know who she is when we've just been talking about her in the previous verse. So it's, it's strange. It's awkward. It does seem added on. But the problem was, the reason it was at, at some point very early in church history, certainly at the end, by the end of the first century or the early second century, it was added in to complete the story because it feels like Mark chapter 16 at verse 8 ends weirdly. It's awkward. It just stops. Wait, what happens? What did they do? Where's the end of the story? None of the other gospels end there. And the church needed to know the rest of the story if all they had was, was Mark. And so it was added on. But it, it wasn't added on in a way to make it look like it was part of Mark's original um, authoring. They didn't try to pretend that they were Mark and slip it in as we wouldn't notice. It was set to be different. Now, what's going on with all this? Well, we don't really know for sure if Mark intended to end his, his, um, his gospel so abruptly. If he did, it would be weird. Most New Testament documents, stories, historical accounts did not end abruptly. Not in, not, it, they, they didn't end with the unfinished story the way that ours might end today. Nor did they end grammatically normally the way this one does. So it's, it seems odd we're not sure what to do with that. Are we missing something of what Mark originally wrote? Well, there's another reason to wonder. But what we can be certain of is in the transmission of the gospel and its acceptance by the church, its recognition as this is a canonical, this is an authoritative scripture from God given to his church, that was done in the form that we have it. And so we can, we can be confident that, that whatever Mark's intention in his ending God has given it to us like this, and it does leave the question hanging, and I think that could be helpful for us. So we're going to go with those two episodes, um, the first one with Joseph in, at the end of Mark chapter 15, and then moving into the first eight verses of Mark chapter 16, posing the question, what are you afraid of? When the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't mean the rest of the Sanhedrin was looking for the kingdom of God. They weren't. Most of them did not even believe in resurrection. But Joseph, although he's a member of the Sanhedrin, he is also somebody who is looking for God's kingdom. He's a man of godly faith. 
He took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, Pilate asked him whether Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, they've kind of emphasized that point, haven't they? Jesus is dead. He granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. We learn from other Gospels that it was actually Joseph's own tomb that he lays Jesus in. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. These two stories, I I said, are Mark seems to put them together, and you say, well, where do you get that? You have the one, you have the other. They're quite different. There's a couple of days between. How is Mark joining these together? There's some patterns, and Mark does this a lot. He he takes the details of the story, and he sets one against the other, and as you join those details together, you realize that Mark's knit them together as a whole. Those details... If I were to point them out, first of all, you have Joseph summoning courage to go to Pilate. On the other hand, at the end of the story, you have these women who do not go to anyone because they're afraid. You have with Joseph, Jesus is dead. He's clearly dead. It's been ascertained and verified that Jesus is dead. On the other side, the angel says, no, 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 he go, he, he's going before you to Galilee. In fact, it's in the present tense, he goes before you. Jesus was laid in a tomb. But on the other side, he is not here. We have Joseph rolling the stone, the heavy stone closed to close the tomb. And the women, as they're coming, who will roll away the stone to open the tomb? And it's already opened. The women last see where the body was laid. And then the other story opens with the the women again coming to where the body had been laid. So you have these parallels that are structured together that pull these two stories together. That's my whole point of that. That and just to point out, Mark is clever in his writing as he writes Born Along by the Holy Spirit. But in these two stories, 
what we get is what should we do with our fear? First of all, with Joseph, in the midst of fear, focus on God's future. You see, Joseph has reason to fear. Joseph has reason to be afraid. But faith in God's kingdom. He was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. And though he has reason to fear, focusing on God's kingdom gives him courage. So focus in the midst of fear, focus on God's future. What is it, what is it that, that Joseph might have to fear? He's a member of the council. Well, the council, the Sanhedrin, they are the ones that just backed Pilate into a corner. Remember, they were the ones that poked and prodded and, and maneuvered and manipulated the situation until they got Pilate to do not what Pilate wanted to do. Pilate wanted to release him. He wanted to let him go. In fact, something about Jesus bothered him. Something about Jesus scared him. He wanted to let him go. But the council, the chief priests and the scribes, they stirred up the people. And they put him into a corner. They said, you're no friend of Caesar. And so Pilate was trapped into doing what they wanted him to do. I don't think he liked it. And now, one of those, the, the, the members, a member of that same council, Pilate's political, um, oh, what's the word? I just lost the word. His, um, his political adversaries in Judea, his competition, one of, that, one of that same council now dares to come to him and make another request. Haven't they demanded enough from him already? How's he going to respond? Not only that, not only how's Pilate going to respond to Joseph personally, but what about the rest of the council? Joseph has standing. Joseph has position. Joseph has recognition in society. He's somebody important. He's a well-respected member of this council, the Sanhedrin, and they were almost, almost unanimous in wanting to get rid of Jesus. And now Joseph's going to honor him? Instead of letting him be just cast aside, his body thrown in a pit like a common criminal, that he's going to honor him in burial by placing him in an expensive rock cut closed with a rolling stone tomb. Not everybody got those. That wasn't like a, a space out here in Brush Prairie Cemetery with a brass plaque in, in, a, in a concrete uh, base. No, no, no. This was the big, fancy mausoleum kind of thing in the middle of a, seminary, a cemetery. Hmm. <laughs> Freudian slip. In the middle of a cemetery where you have this huge building set there and families will place the coffins of their dearly departed in there and there's room to stack plenty of them in. They've made a, they've made a place for future generations and it's, a, and it's this big monument. That's what we're talking about. Few people had such. And Joseph will now use his and thus give that kind of recognition to this one whom the Sanhedrin hated. What are they going to require of him? What's it going to cost him in their eyes? And yet in the midst of fear, he focused on God's future. I remember the words of Nelson Mandela here, that courage is not the absence of fear. He is not courageous because he, he has nothing to fear or he is not afraid. The reality of the fear is the need for courage. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it, Mandela says. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but who conquers that fear. 
who sees the fear and goes forward anyway. Today, we're afraid of, well, we're afraid of dying, right? That's one of the big, the big issues in this whole COVID pandemic thing. We are afraid of death. The scripture describes it in terms of, in fear of death, we're subject to slavery all our lives. We're bound and controlled. We're driven and we're steered. We're even manipulated by fear. We're afraid of dying. And that fear of dying for Christians is actually kind of strange. It's as if this world is... If, if, if it's not all we've got, it's the best that we'll have. Yet in reality, it's simply the best that we've seen so far. Our view of life has been turned upside down if we are looking for the kingdom. We actually look at life, we understand life very differently. What is it? What is it about life as it is? I mean, life as you know it. Let's, let's, let's just be, be kind of reasonable for a minute. Think about life as you know it and all the weakness, the inability. You can't do the things that you wish you were able to do, the, the, um, the, the sickness, the tragedy, the drama, the discouragement, the disappointments, the, the heartbreaks. And that's just before you get out of high school. You want trouble, wait till you have kids in high school, okay? But what is it about that that we are enamored by? It's all that we know. It's been said, well, life may stink, but it's better than the alternative. You know, I, I mentioned that in the office earlier this week, and one of the other, one of, one of our office staff said, well, wait a minute, that's not true. Amen. Somebody's reading their Bible. Uh, this life may stink, but it's better than the alternative. No, it is not. It is, it is not at all better than the alternative. Paul himself says in Philippians chapter 1, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is sacrifice. To live is enduring hardship for the sake of others. But to die, that is gain. That is better. Paul says that to depart and to be with Christ, that is far better. But to remain on in this mortal life is more needful for the sake of others. That's how Paul looks at this life. Paul doesn't look at this life as, I better hold on to this as long as I can because it's the best that I've got. And I'm, I'm driven by fear of maybe losing it. No, I should be driven by or at least have some respect, a healthy respect of a fear of not using this life and this opportunity wisely and well for however long or short that it is. We don't devalue life on the other hand. We don't like, oh, for, forget life. This life is terrible. Let's get on with eternity. Beam me up now, Lord. There's no intelligent life down here. No, we don't devalue life either. But its purpose for us has been turned upside down. Our, our value is not in the fulfillment, the comfort, the, the enjoyment but that here, now, this is our only remaining chance to experience, to live as Christ. Think about it. In knowing our eternal future, this life now is our opportunity to step into somewhat what Jesus did in his incarnation. The incarnation is not just Jesus intervening and God comes and intervenes in human history 
But all of a sudden, we see a whole, you see human life lived differently from a different direction and for a different purpose. And there's where you and I, in faith, can follow him. Not that I squeeze this life like a lemon to get all that I can out of it. But this life is an opportunity given to me not to make as best as I can for me, but to use in God's good ways for the better of others. For me to live is Christ. And I don't want to shortcut that. I'm trying to be careful. I don't want to die young because there's more that God would have me to, to, to do and to be used for in the lives of others. And I can name some of them, but the funnest part of that is I can't even name some of them. I don't know the fullness of what God's going to do through a life that is yielded and, 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 and placed in his hands for his purposes. Our opportunity is to experience, is to live in this mortality in Christ. That this life, with all of its suffering, that endured for the sake of others, not choosing the easier path, not choosing the more comfortable path, but choosing his path, which may call sacrifice for the sake of others. Joseph is looking for a kingdom. He's like Abraham, who looked for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. Joseph is looking for a kingdom, a better kingdom, another kingdom. And because he's looking for another kingdom, he has courage in the face of the present king of Rome. He has courage to risk all, to follow Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, did what? He endured the cross, despising the shame, but he's looking to the future where he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Joseph's looking in the same direction. Somebody raised the question, can you imagine Joseph going back to the next Sanhedrin meeting? And they're like, Joseph, what did you do? You had such a good thing going. I mean, you had built up wealth and you used your money and you, 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 you bought a place there in the old quarry and you, you turned it into a garden and there you, you, you spent the money to carve a nice tomb right into the rock. Your remains would be safe there into centuries into the future. You had it all sewed up now and in the future and then you, 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 you took that man Jesus and you put that Jesus into your tomb. What were you thinking? And maybe Joseph said, well, he only needed it for the weekend. <laughs> Somebody told me after the first service, this was the first Airbnb. <laughs> I'm not sure, but okay, it resonates. We understand that. We get that. It's temporary. There's this life. What am I afraid of? It's temporary. Anything that I'm afraid of is in reality only for the weekend. Jesus is looking for a kingdom instead. Je Jesus said, follow me. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. Joseph is willing to do that. Joseph is willing to risk his present because his future is secure. He can risk in the present. The present doesn't really matter because it's short. And his eyes are on God's kingdom. In the midst of fear, focus on God's future. So let's talk again. What are you afraid of? Don't say nothing. 
Because you are afraid of something. You're afraid of, of something that could happen. You're afraid of how things might turn out. You're afraid of, what you, of things in your future that you don't know about yet. You're afraid of what others think about you, what they might say about you, what they might write about you. What are you afraid of? What does God clearly require of you? For Joseph, it's honoring the Lord's anointed even if it costs him something. What does the Lord clearly require of you? For Joseph, he knew that the Lord's anointed one needed to be with the rich man at his death. So I can imagine Joseph looking around, and there's nobody else standing there, a rich man with a tomb, and so Joseph steps forward. He said, well, I've got one. He can use mine. What is it that God would set before you that you know is in line with his word, you know it's in line with his, word, his will, but you're afraid to take the next step forward? Because our eyes are too much on what are people going to do to me now? Rather than what, God, what might God do through this? And what is this going to look like in God's future rather than in the present? You may fear how some will respond. You know that others will likely exclude you. They'll whisper about you. They might fire you. They'll rage against your kind online. But it doesn't matter. Because in the midst of those fears, you focus on God's future. Where do you find the courage to go against the currents? In confidence that God's kingdom is coming. And that loyalty to him is what's going to matter most. Our compass, our compass in a fog of fear is faith in God's future. It's one of the reasons we need to know what God's future is. We need to know something about the future. Something about end times does matter. That Jesus is coming, the certainty of it. The church needed the book of Revelation because we need to know that he is coming. He will triumph and he will reign. And this is temporary. Eternity is set before us. So then when fear does arise, now let's move from Joseph to, to the woman at the tomb. When fear does arise, what do we do? We answer it with God's truth. If we know truth about God's future, and if we know truth about who he is and what he's doing in the present, when fear arises, answer it with God's truth. In the face of the best news ever, Mary seems paralyzed by fear. How can that be? And that seems odd, doesn't it? You might have trouble wrapping your head around it. Why would she be afraid? How could she be afraid? Well, let's take it into something more, more, more earthly or secular. Imagine you play basketball in college. Imagine you're from a small, insignificant, not much heard of school, but somehow, this happens sometimes in basketball, you made it. You had a season that was unlike others you've had in the past. Your school hasn't seen this many wins before, and somehow you made it. Somehow your team was chosen. You're going to the big dance. You have made it to March Madness. You have got the 16th seed, and you are thrilled to be in there at all. You're astonished. How did this happen? You're ecstatic. You're excited. You don't fully comprehend it all. But we're going to March Madness. We're going to be on TV. And our first game is against Duke. We are thrilled. And we are 
terrified, right? How are we going to do that? What can we do? Maybe your class voted you. I don't know if it's high school or, or college or university. Your class voted you. There's the valedictorians and all. the, But they voted you also to be their own class speaker. You're going to stand before everybody, the graduates and the audience and the dignified people on the platform, and you're going to have something to say on behalf of your graduating class. Wow, they chose me. I'm going to be up there, not just for a quick walk across the stage, and I hope I, I shake, take, and do all that stuff right, but, but, but I'm going to stand up there and, and say something to everybody. What an honor. What am I going to say? Oh my goodness, they're all going to be looking at me. I'm an introvert. I, I can't get up there. Thrilled and terrified. You just landed in your business the biggest deal of your career. This could make you. This could change everything. This has the potential to put you on the map, on the path to success, wealth, recognition. Unless, of course, you blow it. You're thrilled. You're terrified. When fear arises, answer it with truth. What's going on in the minds of some of these women? Well, maybe part of it is, who are we? What can I do? Who am I to be witness to? Who am I to convince anybody? In the first century, women were not considered valid witnesses to any recognition of fact. They couldn't testify in a court of law. Now it's women. In fact, a couple hundred years later, skeptics would still mock the church and Christians as, wait a minute, wasn't that thing that was just initially started in myths that came out of the gossip of women? Weren't, weren't women the first ones to start talking about this thing? Who are we? Who are we to convince anybody? The least likely of all witnesses, D.L. Moody made the statement that our greatest fear should not be of failure, that nobody will believe. But our greatest fear should be of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Who am I is not the question. Who is he? Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. It's no longer hopeless. We're no longer stuck in status quo. In fact, his power as risen from the dead is what transforms not only reality, but life for Christians. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is, is Paul praying for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1. You've probably heard this from me before. That he prays specifically three things for those Christians he says, I pray that you would know, that God would open the eyes of your understanding so that you would know, first of all, the hope of his calling. I pray that you would, would know and be clear in your expectation and your hope of God's glorious future. Oh, that God would set his kingdom before us. 
He says, and I pray that you would know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. That is to say, not the, not the wonderful things that he has for us in his presence, but the joy to God, the value to God, the inheritance that God has of you in his presence. Paul says, I pray that somehow your eyes would be opened, that you would see how precious you are to God. And thirdly, and this is the one that touches here. He says, I pray that you would know the greatness of his power toward you who believe. What kind of power is that? That same power which raised Jesus from the dead. That that is the power that's in us who believe. So when Paul says that it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, that's the working power. When Paul says, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but God's grace, which was with me. When he says, for this cause, for this purpose of building up others in, this cry, in Christ, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. It's that same working power that raised Jesus from the dead that gives life to our mortal bodies. That's his promise. What can I do? That's the wrong question. Jesus is risen and his power is in us. But what if they don't believe? What if I go and what if I do, but they don't believe? Nobody hears. Well, to quote that great theologian, Babe Ruth, he said, don't let fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. Don't let fear of striking out keep you from stepping up to the plate. That's the way I think Babe Ruth should have said it. That's Bob's version. He goes before you, the angel says. When fear ar arises, answer it with truth. Jesus is risen. He goes before you. You're not in this on your own. It's not up to you. The results aren't up to you. In fact, the women after, in, 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 in the near future, in this same morning, they are going to go to the disciples, and guess what? They don't believe. They say, come on. You're just women. You're all excited. You know, you're all emotional. It's going to take Jesus himself standing up. But do you ever, you ever thought of it that way? That when you step out in faith, that Jesus himself will back your play. You ever thought of it that way? Jesus himself will back your play. Jesus himself goes before you. I love that phrase. It reminds me of Hebrews 12. Where Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the initiator and the consummator. He is the beginner and the ender. He is the opener of the door, and he is the closer that brings all of us in with him. He's the one who goes before, and he's the one who brings us in after. He goes before us, but not just to lead the way, not just to lead the charge. If anybody wants to follow, they can. He leads the way, and he brings us along. You're not on your own. It is not up to you. What if they don't believe me? Jesus himself will back their play. I talked to some folks after the first service, and they have somebody in their family that they have been praying, praying for for years. Got a, they got a message back this last week out of the blue talking about how he'd connected with somebody else, and uh, this person from 
years in his past is now a pastor and pastoring a church and several of his previous friends are now going to that church and he, next time they come and visit, would you like to go to this, this church with me? They've been praying with him for years. They've shared the faith, faith in Christ with him. And Jesus himself is backing their play through the rest of the body of Christ. Like Joseph, following is not about success, but faith. Not in the person's response, but it's in my willing to risk in being faithful. But what if that risk costs too much? Here's the third word from the angel. You will see him. You will see him. He reminds them of the future. He reminds them of resurrection reality and how that changes their future. You will see him just as he said. The one who loses his life for my sake, Jesus said, that's the one who finds it. We're a bit all upside down in all of this. But in Hebrews chapter 13, we're reminded. Hebrews is a wonderful epistle because it's writing, not unlike Mark's agenda here, it's writing to believers when everything's about to change in Jerusalem. In fact, the temple is soon going to be destroyed. And in that moment where there's going to be great discouragement, there's going to be a great cost in following Jesus, and it's easy to think of turning back and returning to Judaism instead of going on with Christ. And the epistle to the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is written to encourage them to continue to follow Jesus, even following him outside the camp, outside the city, bearing his reproach. And it says in chapter 13 and verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can anyone do to me? What can man do to me? They might reject you. They might criticize you. They might ignore you. They might mock you. They might discriminate against you. They might cancel you. They might kill you. And it's happening in many places in the world. All of these things they did to Jesus. And yet, God has the final word. God has the final word in his own son. God has the final word for you, his treasure. You are my beloved son, God has said. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I give you the kingdom. And so it is for you and I. Well, they did run well. They, told, they, they went and told the disciples. The two others were told on the road. And Jesus himself comes along and backs up their story. From there, the disciples told everyone, and these Roman Christians know it. Because the gospel has gone all the way to Rome. And they've heard it too. In fact, some of them perhaps were the ones to carry it from Jerusalem back to Rome. And in the midst of, tre- in the midst of pressure, in the midst of, a, of, a, of a, um, a mood in the culture coming down from the emperor that is ter- beginning to turn the tide against Christians, those who would follow this Jesus, no longer falling under protection that, the, that Jewish people had, they're going to be called out for their faith. And yet they're told, don't be afraid. When fear arises, answer it with truth. In the midst of fear, focus on God's future. So again, what are you afraid of? 
There are many things you could be afraid of. Really nothing that we should be afraid of. There's something holding you back right now. In the midst of these examples, as I've described them, there's something that's come to your mind. I'd encourage you to face it. I'd encourage you to, to, to own that and say, yeah, this is an obstacle for me. This is something that stands in my way. The, it might be fear of finances in the future. It might be, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And I'm scrambling because. What is that thing that scares you today? I'd encourage you to own it. I'd encourage you to write it down. Mark it out. And then, alongside of that, write something that you know about, <clears throat> about God's future. And write down maybe these four statements. Jesus is risen. Jesus goes before me. I will see him. It will be just as he said. Let's pray. Father, we are easily, we are easily, Lord, controlled by our fears. Lord, it's not reasonable or rational, but we are not always reasonable and rational people. You have also made us emotional people. You have made us irrational people. And Lord, in the midst of those feelings and emotions, Lord, we need faith in you. We do pray, Father, that the eyes of our understanding would be opened. And there we would indeed see our Lord Jesus risen. And we would remember his promise to us that he would not leave us. He would not forsake us. He is with us. He goes before. Father, I pray in the midst of these fears, these things, Lord, that would hold us back, that would be weight on our feet, they would be as bonds or shackles on our hands, keeping them from your service. Father, would you show us our fears? Help us to see them with eyes open, Eyes open in faith, in your future, in your promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.